Well, if you would stand, please, we'll take verses 12 through 21, Acts chapter 5. This morning's message is entitled, Signs and Wonders. Beginning at verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the, church, to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that, the, that at least the shadow of Peter's passing might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that... They entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Please be seated. Looking at verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Now, this, through the hands of the apostles, the many signs and wonders. Well, the last sign and wonder we had was slaying of two people. They were filled with Satan. Uh, well, Satan filled their heart to be hypocrites uh, to the church, Sapphira and Ananias, and they were dealt with. We look back at verse 11, so great fear came upon all the church, and upon all who heard these things. That was a sign and wonder, too. I want to be careful to not pick on too much those who go around claiming signs and wonders. I think in most cases they don't know what they're talking about. I want to stick to what the Scripture has to tell us. And the Scripture tells us things uh, not only right out in a text, but collectively through Uh, the context of events, and uh, just various ways. It's so thorough if we would avail ourselves of it. But God's stern response to Satan's influence of hypocrisy produced respect. Unbelievers respected the church. And now it's going to produce compassionate healing, the, the presence of the Lord, that is. But first there had to be this purging. The statement had to be made early in the church's uh, existence. When James wrote this in his third chapter, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable. I wonder if he had these events in mind. It is important that we understand, uh, well, that we read all of that verse because you just can't fragment James 3.17. This wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, the willing to yield does not mean to yield to impurity. 
it, uh, it, it reduces greatly the spirit of strife and, and contest in believers. So the story shifts from the slaying to the healings. Now, in the face of illness, we all want healing. We all want to be delivered from what is hurting us. We want divine healing, if we can get that. But I'd also like to see other kind of miracles. The miracle of no complaining. That would be a big one. The power to divinely impart loyalty into churchgoers who are not only churchgoers but born-again believers, disciples of Christ. I'd like to see the miracle of the Holy Spirit multiplying conversions through his people and making more disciples. These things, to me, are miracles. When I consider the people that serve here in this church, for example, I, I think that it's just miraculous, uh, the, the quality uh, of, of care that they give because it is God's house. We want the church magnified, and that means in a, in a good way, respected, and this is what was happening at this time in church history. We want um, to see the Scripture embraced by Christians and not just said to be embraced. I mean, there's a lot of Christians that say they believe in the Bible, but then they, they behave in church in a contrary way, and signs and wonders being one of the abuses that takes place. God uses signs and wonders often in Scripture. Well, I should put it this way. God uses signs and wonders in Scripture in the beginning of a great work that he is doing. And, of course, this is one of them. Aaron's rod budded right almonds to attest to the authority given to him when that authority was challenged by Dathan and those who were with him. And that is a miracle. It was just a stick, a walking stick. It was completely dead. And yet, God made it clear by having it bring forth these ripe almonds that Aaron was God's choice. It attested to the authority, as these signs and wonders at this time in history are attesting to the authority of the apostles. What would have happened to the church if God did not do these things? What would have happened to the church at this early stage if God did not do these signs and wonders through these apostles? Here's an interesting thought. In the book of Genesis, we don't read of any human mir performing miracles. Oh, of course, God is. In the beginning, God created out of nothing everything that we know in, in physical creation. But not until the birth of Israel and the giving of the law and the giving of the prophets and the coming of Christ and the birth of church were signs and wonders very pronounced at these special times when it was the uh, initiating of a work that God was doing. As I mentioned, the law, uh, the birth of Israel, the law of, of Moses given to the people, the prophets, when Elijah and Elisha came along, they were really the first of the miracle-working prophets long before Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And God makes a statement through these things. And, and they're in the scripture for us to identify why is it that there were signs and wonders at critical points in, the, in biblical history and not every day for us? And I'm not one of those that's ready to blame believers. 
I don't believe, well, it's because we don't have faith. I don't believe that at all, because the Holy Spirit can give us faith. I think that God is doing other things, and, and they are there for us to discover and join and get things done. Every day the Christian wakes up, the Holy Spirit is saying to you, get her done. Go out and get her done. Uh, be righteous. Be the Christian. Preach the word in season out. Be my witness. Be filled with the Spirit. Today we have the completed Scripture, the canon of, of Scripture, the rule of Scripture. Paul wrote, wrote this to the Corinthians. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. There's no mention of signs and wonders being performed by them. It's preaching. Even though there was this craving for signs and wonders, there was this craving for these uh, so-called sayings, uh, the wisdom of men. But Paul is saying, we just gave him the gospel. And here we are today because of the work that these apostles did. The Jews received their signs, and it, was, it eventually became, now you just have to receive the truth. And I'll get to that a little bit of that in a minute. And the Greeks received their wisdom. Well, the Jews were receiving the sign right here in, in our story. The Greeks were receiving wisdom when the apostles began to take the gospel to other countries, other parts of the world, other societies, other peoples, and then we have it, uh, much of it, remaining in the form of the letters, the epistles. And so we test a preacher's message, whether the preacher is a person preaching Christ to some lost soul or encouraging another believer, or it's a preacher from a pulpit. We test those messages, not by signs and wonders, but by truth according to Scripture. Is what they are saying true? Just the whole thing, Deuteronomy 13, God is saying, listen, it's not the sign or wonder, it's are they agreeing with me? In fact, God said, I'll let some of these people come along and do signs and wonders who will take you from the word of God, and you should identify them and stay clear from them. I have found all other religions fail the truth test. That's why I don't belong to other religions. That's why I belong to Jesus Christ, because the Bible has passed a truth test. He says here in verse 12, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. There's been an emphasis in these early chapters in Acts by Luke uh, on the accord, the unity amongst the apostles. Now, it will be challenged, of course, when... Paul goes up to Antioch and James sends people to, Paul said they came to spy out our liberty. He's so frustrated with them because it was very difficult for many of the Christians who came to Christ to break from rabbinical Judaism, not biblical Judaism. There is a big difference. The rabbis had so bloated the teachings based on, on, on their culture that they boxed God's word out. And this is one of the reasons why they couldn't receive Messiah when he did come. Well, here they are at the temple. And this portico is surrounded by the court of the Gentiles. It was a common place for Jesus to be, to teach when he was in Jerusalem, John 10, 23. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And so there's that connection that these apostles had uh, to, to this particular area at the, on the temple mount. In fact, the angel, when he delivers Peter, 
He's going to send them to, this, to, to the temple to preach. The church had no building of its own. They, they had to preach in public places at this point in history. In verse 13, it says, Yet none of the rest dare join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Well, this is in reference to what happened to Sapphire and Ananias. Very eye-opening, this is. Where, how do we, where do I begin on this one? Well, it starts out with the opportunistic people, Sapphire and Ananias, uh, what happened with them, sent a message to other opportunistic people not to uh, dare go to the church and, and play games. The, the church should be like, nothing else in the world should be like the church. Do you have the same feeling when you go shopping in a grocery store that you do when you come into a church? I mean, shouldn't there be this, this reverence? Uh, maybe you don't like some of the people there. Uh, maybe you don't like the pastor if you go to another church. Um, but well, this is God's house. It's beyond the people. There's more to it than just the people. And this reverence from outsiders looking in is admirable. Because today, people look at churches and they say, they just want your money. They, you know, they default on loans. They just, uh, they don't preach the word. They've become social centers. They have political infighting. We talk about the structure of, of, of this church. For example, um, we don't have political issues, at least not that I know of. I, I, we don't have to lobby for somebody's, you know, desire to have a certain wall painted a certain color or some outreach. Uh, that's, that's not how it is handed to us in the New Testament. With the apostles, uh, they had this pastoral authority that is essential. It is, it is not a dictatorship at all, but it is the rule in the house of God. And word got around that you could not rip off the people in God's house, and this caused that this reverence. Prosperity teachers dared not pretend be Christians like they do today. This is so shameful that people step into pulpits with authority and try to get in your wallet. So that commercial, you may say, what's in your wallet? A prosperity teacher. If you're not careful, that's who's in your wallet. I mean, pastors don't have to come up and tell you to give and how much to give. You know what the scripture says. Uh, when we come to it, we discuss it. And uh, I, I, that's enough about that. I can go on a rant on that one very easily. Anyway, those sincere about the invitation of the Holy Spirit did not stay away from the church. They did not stay away from the church because of what happened to Sapphira and Ananias. In fact, that brought people in. The point is that the death of those two served to filter out make-believers. Here's a... A Spurgeon quote, C.H. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in the English language. That which is offensive in the gospel is just that which is effective. What men oppose is what God uses. If the offense of the cross has ceased, the power of the cross would have ceased also. It is not left to us to cut and carve the doctrine of Christ. We are to preach all the words of this life. We'll be coming back to that. 
the church had a repelling power at this time, as well as an attractive power. And that is true today. A church that stands up and says, no, this is how we're going to do it. This is what God is leading us to do. This is very attractive to many believers. And it, to others, well, we don't like that. We want to have a say-so. Well, then you're repelled by that system, that approach uh, to the assembly. Here, it appealed to those, as I said, with a contrite heart and frightened the rest away, and that filtered out those who would cause damage to the early church. It wouldn't stay this way. The church would have to figure this out. Many have. Many have not. There was a real gain to this. Still, there should be a measure of hollowed thinking, hollowed intimidation in God's house. Um, you know, do you, do you see yourself, you know, just waltzing into God's house, eating a big sandwich, you know, sipping on a Coke or something? Do you, would that, does that fit your picture of reverence? But there are people that would do that if, if they're not trained in the spirit. What did Theophilus think when he got to chapter 5? Remember, that's the person that Luke is addressing the book of Acts 2. Oh, Theophilus, of all the things Jesus began both to do and to teach. And so he's reading along the power of the spirit and all this healing. And then he comes to chapter 5. What is he thinking? Well, that's no way to make converts. That's no way to build the church. And God says, oh, yeah, it is. So we have this doctrine of non-accommodation to the defiant. Luke then inserts what we call verse 14, if you look with me. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes, both of men and women. So that uh, stern leadership of Peter was used by the Holy Spirit to grow the church, to save souls, to help populate heaven. With believers. Those who thought Peter overdid it, they were wrong. Peter did not damage the church, he purged it. God using him, of course. It's all God. Peter's the vessel, an unwilling vessel. He's a servant, he's a slave of Jesus Christ. Multitudes of, of both men and women. Well, in earlier accounts, you know, of course, it was just the men. But now Luke is saying this is the men and the women now are coming into the church. Not that they weren't getting saved before, but that, that kind of gave us an idea of where these events were located at the Temple Mount. Now this is just the, all Jerusalem and, and the surrounding regions. These that were coming to the church, both of men and women, were not recruited by well-meaning church people. But they were won by spirit-filled church people. And there's a huge difference. I, I don't think, again, we should be trying to get people to come to our church. Now, we're not trying to stop them either. But the motive is to get them to Christ. Of course, we can invite you. Or why don't you come to church with me? Uh, you know, you should get roughed up just like me sitting in the pew. Why should you? I'd be the only one. I do believe we, we should, of course, invite but it's Christ we're upholding and not the church. And it's very tricky. You know, you go to some churches and you feel like they're all just coming at you with a sales pitch. You know, oh, happy to see you. Never seen anybody like you. You're like the most wonderful person in the world. Oh, they never told you that. Well, they told me that. I think many of the people that I am privileged to pastor, they do it this way. They let the spirit lead them. Their motive is Christ. And I think in some places it's gotten away from people. 
and uh, they, they've lost their identity, or maybe they've never learned that our identity is to be spirit-led. As many as are the sons of God, these are uh, led by the Spirit of God, wrote Paul. Well, verse 15, So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Well, Peter does not stop the people from doing this. And what happened with, again, Sapphire and Ananias, because the story is related on purpose. We have the slaying and now we have the healing. Uh, here, the, the, the people drawn to him, are drawn to Peter. It's a, it singles him out of the twelve. That the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on them. They never know what God is doing well, I mean, until he reveals it. And when he has laid a course of obedience out for us, we follow that course and say, I don't know what he's doing, but he's the leader and I'm going to follow him. That's called loyalty. Remember, in those days, they did not have the hospitals and the pharmacies as we have today. Hope for the injured uh, is, is just very small. We remember the woman that said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. She had spent her life savings looking to be healed. Well, that still goes on. People spend a lot of money looking to be healed. Uh, the point is, uh, her, her desperation was not just hers. There were others who were sick and desperate for relief. Now, God is absorbing their superstition as they come to Peter. Well, what does that mean? Because God certainly doesn't endorse superstition. Christians will have to address this at some point. We have no reason to doubt that they uh, did not address this. In the book of Numbers, there's this um, Moses, his leadership, leading the people in the wilderness. Because of their unbelief, they're in the wilderness. And they begin to complain and fuss at God and Moses about this manna every day. We're sick of it. God's led us out into the wilderness to kill us off. And the Bible is very clear that they complained about God and Moses. And so God sent serpents amongst the people. Vipers. Poisonous snakes. And the, the people were dying. But it got them to repent, many of them. They began to reconsider what the, their blasphemy. And God told Moses this, Numbers 21, verse 9, So Moses made a bronze serpent, because God told him to, and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. You exercised your faith and obedience to, to, to the terms of God, God would, would heal you. If you were bullheaded, and you, I'm not looking, I don't believe it, then you would die. The serpent's bite would do you in. And that is true to this day. The serpent's bite will put you in hell unless you look at the cross. And so Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so now we have this parallel. We have this teaching that God had ordained that moment. It spoke of a greater moment. But it became a superstition among the Jewish people. Centuries later, when King Hezekiah is on the throne, we find the Jewish people using this brass serpent of Moses 
as this superstitious kind of a, a idol. Second Kings 18, verse 4, speaking of Hezekiah, he removed the high places. This is his reformation, attempt to get the people back to God, away from their idols. He removed the high places and broke up and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. So there the people had become superstitious. They had taken a work of God and they had it devolved into this superstitious idol. Hezekiah comes along and says, this thing is nothing. It's nothing. Nahushtin, it's nothing. And he destroyed it, properly so. Well, here in the book of Acts, we see the people saying, the shadow of Peter. The shadow of Peter. Well, there's no power in the shadow of Peter. There's nothing ordained. But the, the people were struggling, the Jewish people were struggling at this time in their history to receive Messiah because they were not getting it from the leadership. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were antichrist. And God is helping them along. God is meeting them where they are. He's absorbing their superstition and saying, I'll deal with this. I'll take them in for now, but I'm going to deal with this. Paul, when writing to the Colossians, he had those people that were going around trying to use, uh, you know, uh, religion and the law and commandments and things like that, rituals to, to live the Christian life. And they were boasting about these things. And Paul wanted to deal with these people. You know, they were saying, well, I don't eat this and I eat that. And they were acting this self-righteous stuff. Paul says, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. He said, there's a real fight going on and these things aren't going to win it for you. I do believe Jesus breaks chains, but I also know he does it very slowly. And I also know that sometimes those chains aren't broken until you leave this life and get to heaven. And I also know that no matter whether you are chained or not, you and I are expected to be witnesses for Jesus Christ of greater things and a greater work. And I'll come back to the greater work in the believers in a little bit. Paul says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Salvation is received, it's not earned. And so to kind of get back to this, when they brought their sick out to the streets and laid them on beds and couches, God says, I'm going to honor this, because this is where they are. And the church is young, and it, if it, it will stall. The church will stall if I don't breathe life into it, and this is the method he chose. It says that, here in verse 15, that at least the shadow of Peter passing my fall on some of them. This is the shadow of life as opposed to the shadow of death in Psalm 23. Peter's link to Christ was circulated. Somebody said, this guy has got power. He's got the power of Christ. And again, linking this to Sapphira and Ananias. Now, superstitions, they abounded in those days. And a superstition is a baseless belief in some unseen power, some unseen force. It's irrational, but it is often deep-seated. I mean, it's okay if you fall out of an airplane with no parachute, as long as you've got a clover, a four-leaf clover in your pocket, you'll survive. Of course, that's the craziest thing. That might be a bit extreme, but it's along those lines. 
And Christians aren't supposed to be buying into this stuff, throwing salt over our shoulder. Oh, don't step on the crack, or you know, don't, don't, don't. Just say, you know, baseball is infested with stupid stu- superstition. And if you're a Christian baseball player, you shouldn't be buying into any of that stuff. Well, it also speaks of a person's desperation, but again, without truth. And in those days, people believed that the shadow of an evil person could affect you. And so you would avoid the shadow of an evil person. Well, here they've reversed it. They said, well, this is the shadow of a righteous person. Let's have some of that rub off on us. And, and again, God is saying, you know, this, is a, this knot is really uh, uh, knotted up. And to undo this, it's going to take time. Are some today so desperate for the miraculous that they no longer listen to Scripture? Yes. There are many who claim to be Christians, and they don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. They just want the miracles. And we, you know, have to face the world and straighten those things out if they think that is the church. Is expositional Bible teaching boring to you? If it is, you, you may be a sensation seeker. It's too much to just go by verse by verse, line by line, precept by precept. You don't see the value in that. You want to feel something. You want the pad. You know, Adrian Rogers was good for these catchy phrases. I can't do any of them. I, I mean, I, I'm, and here, I'm not bashing Adrian Rogers. He was a man of God. He preached the gospel. Did some things not my way, but I do things that aren't his way, and mine are better. And, but anyway... Uh, you know, some Christians, they just got to have that. Okay, that's not the worst thing. But can you endure the word? It is hard work. Should it be easy? Should you just know the Bible because you showed up to church? You got to pay attention. You have to apply yourself. I tell you teens and you adults also, if you're not familiar with a section of Scripture and you're coming to a verse-by-verse exposition of Scripture... Read up for before you get there so you can follow along at least a little bit. How many of you started attending here and you couldn't follow along? You were very, you know, like, what is he talking about? But in time, now you're able to keep up. I think, I hope, there are some. Uh, scripture does not say here that Peter's shadow explicitly healed, but it says they were healed. It, it, you know, it doesn't connect it to the shadow. Luke is being careful with this. He's telling us what happened. He's not endorsing it. Uh, he's saying God, God did this, but he is not saying this is how the church should be. You can stand in the shadow of a good person all you want, and nothing's going to rub off on you except shade. So, uh, of course, verse 16 will tell us about the healing. There are... Um, Always those who like to listen to expositional teaching, but they're never learning to. That's another problem. You hear it. God has made it very clear. And yet you just go on to something else. And you can drink out of a clean glass or a dirty glass. It makes no difference to you. You're always learning. You're never coming into the knowledge. When you come into the knowledge, you can't drink from a dirty cup anymore. It has to be right. Uh, this is unfortunate that there are people that can listen to some of these charlatans that are out there. Then they can come to a church where they're, they're, the, the word is just being taught, and they can listen to that too. Something's wrong with that. That spring is giving up sour and sweet water at the same time. That's not right. 
We, if, we, if we're learning, what are we doing with it? Do we ever ask ourselves, what am I doing with all this expositional teaching? What, what now what happens, Lord? I, I love that about the Apostle Paul. Who are you? What do you want me to do? And then he goes and does it. And uh, we, should, we are to follow these examples. And it takes work. Anybody who thinks the Christian life does not involve suffering and pain and hard work and sweat of the brow doesn't understand the Christian life. You're going to become disillusioned when you name it and claim it and it doesn't, it's not yours. It's a very sad, sad teaching that somebody ever came along with thinking they could name something to God and then claim it as though they have this power to make God give them what they're claiming. And yet it is widespread. Sincerity is, is not enough to validate it. It's the what does the Bible say? The prophets of Baal were cutting themselves in front of Elijah. They were very sincere and very emotional and very much blasphemers and very much wrong. And in the end, they were killed. They died. Verse 16 also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities of Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so there is this ministry taking place here through the apostles. These are Jewish people at this time. These are not Gentiles. Maybe some proselytes in there, uh, Gentiles converted to Judaism. But these are the Jews. And as I mentioned, had God not done these extraordinary miracles by the apostles, would Christianity have stalled, even failed? I think so, or else God would not have done this. Because of the people's inability to think outside of rabbinical Judaism, saying this twice, rabbinical Judaism misrepresented God. What is rabbinical Judaism? Well, the rabbis, the teachers, they began to teach things about God that were actually, many of them, contrary to Moses. They began to come up with their own ideas and their own rules, and they began to lay them on the people and enslave the people. And they became these celebrities. And Jesus went right at them. In, in the days that Christ walked, he targeted the Pharisees. Paul will be and Peter in Jerusalem, they will be dealing with the Sadducees, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. But this was God's mercy at this time. Not God's approval. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. And Jesus, when he, when he came out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. Because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Where were the rabbis? They were supposed to be the shepherds. But they didn't have them. And this is why the Sermon on the Mount was so fierce in their face, Christ said, unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees, the scribes, you're not going to get into heaven. Now, what a statement that was. Uh, that, that's how you make an introduction with your ministry, is you go right at those things, those sacred cows, those wrong things that everybody wants to protect and nobody wants to notice. Does an elephant notice the people in the room? That's random, but it's a thought. Anyway, how different is the beginning of Christianity? Where God is looking to heal. God is looking to help people. How different from our, or what characterizes the beginning of Christianity, truth and love and healing and a firm hand, versus 
Islam. Islam's beginning was through threats and violence, Allah's hitmen, and that's it. You either convert or we kill everybody, and that's history. That is fact. Uh, that is not taking a cheap shot. It is that way to this day. There are those religions that when they are not in power, they're like uh, a fox. They're real slick. They fly beneath the radar. But when they get power, they are tigers. Uh, they are abusive. They persecute. Uh, the whole Spanish Inquisition was just that. Uh, you, you just uh, They were in power and they persecuted millions of Jews and anybody else that disagreed with them in the name of Christ, no less. Uh, that beware, the devil not only makes himself appear as an angel of light, but sometimes just as an outright killer. So, could Christians today handle this type of spiritual power? I think not. That's what I think. What if the church had the superpower where they got the signs and wonders? Because remember, this is mainly in the apostles, not the common Christian. The apostles are the main ones doing these miracles. They have some, you know, Philip, that was quite miraculous with the things that Philip did. Not a bunch of them, but one, one I have in mind. What about today? What, what about obedience? What if you could obey Christ all the time? Would you become one of those uh, that would cast the first stone? You know, when Jesus said, let him without sin cast the first stone, they were going to still stone her. It wasn't until he started writing in the sand, probably laying out what he knew about them, uh, that they, they dropped their stones and left from the oldest to the youngest. I think God leaves sometimes these moral struggles in our life to keep us in place because we would become self-righteous and judgmental. Why is that? Because we're sinners. That's our nature, to get it wrong. Already you can get a person that, you know, is, is uh, a perfectionist. They re work really hard to get things right. And they're very intolerant of anybody who messes up. Well, where does that come from? I'm talking about Christians, too. Maybe you are um, successful at this or that. And that you think that that gives you the right to look down at other people, to belittle them. You don't have that right. If you take that right, you're a thief. And so we, we fight these things. We say, man, I'm struggling with pride. I'm struggling with, you know, greed. I'm struggling with <laughs> uh, road rage or whatever it may, may be. I've never had road rage. Is that Pinocchio thing true? <laughs> it is one of the best proving grounds for your faith. Uh, you think you're going to grow out of it, you know. You know, when I get older, I'm not going to be like this. You're wrong. <laughs> you better learn to keep that thing corralled. And that is much of what, so you struggle with a sin. Much of the work that you are assigned then is to contain it. If you can't cast it out, contain it. That is a lot. That is not a little bit. You know, we have, you know, bite your tongue kind of a thing. Restrain yourself. God honors that. And God told David, David, it was in your heart to do this right thing. And, I, and God applauded David for that. If you don't learn to do that and you continue to fail, Satan is going to swallow you up. He's going to tell you your religion doesn't work. That Christ doesn't love you. That you are the exception of wrong, not right. And so we, we learn to fight the devil. We become skilled at being a Christian. 
And if you're the same Christian you were 10 years ago, what's wrong? Have you progressed? Are you doing better in any other areas? Um, I hope. It's very difficult. That's a difficult question because we don't want to boast. We don't want to brag. We don't want to set ourselves up for a failure tomorrow. Yeah, actually, I'm getting this pretty good. Just a minute, a little while ago, we were in my office with the musicians. I was saying, you know, I cough almost all season long from the pulpit. Now it's pollen allergy season. I'm not coughing. But all of a sudden, now I've got a little, you know, I can feel some stuff. It's like, well, Lord, come on. I was having fun with them. I wasn't serious. Well, a little serious, but not a lot to bring. So my point is, I know, you know, in our fight, we want to be compassionate. We don't want to be self-righteous. That's who the Sadducees and Pharisees were, and they were deadly. They killed the Lord. And this is who our apostles here are dealing with. These signs and wonders did not continue with them in the latter years of their ministry. What became dominant was their preaching and praying. Their teaching, preaching, and praying. That became the dominant characteristic of the apostles' ministry. As I mentioned before, Paul said, I left uh, Trophimus in Miletus sick. I couldn't heal him. And uh, how, how educational that is. So, this goes back to my, my point in verse 12 about God using miracles before a large undertaking. Uh, Jesus and the apostles, they performed signs and wonders to launch the gospel, to launch the church. Two separate events. Because the church, as we know it, was not yet when Christ walked. There were the ecclesia, they called out the righteous people, but not the church, as the New Testament church. That did not happen until after the resurrection and then Pentecost. Uh, God was not doing a, a single thing, but a couple of things to bring about and if you don't track that, you, you miss a lot. You, it's hard to understand the Sermon of the Mount if, if you don't really understand New Testament theology. You go right back to the Old Testament. And that's Old Testament only to define uh, what is going on. So, uh, and that should be a lot of fun. I hope I'm not confusing anybody. I'm, I'm pretty good at doing that. <laughs> Spurgeon said, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. I can't stand that saying. Because <laughs> I know sometimes it's a mist. It's hard. It's, we're dealing with topics that uh, have different views, and you're trying to say, okay, which view do I go after? Who, who here believes in the signs and wonder movement? Who here doesn't get that emotions are good when they are kept subordinate to the Scripture and, and to, the, to the brain? But when they, get, when they take the lead, they, are, they will terrorize others. Uh, the person who is very emotional really doesn't care about the other person's emotions. They just care about their emotions. I've noticed these things over the years. God has also been exceptionally protective over new work. Not only giving miracles, but protecting it. I'll give you an example. Two men named Ad, uh, Nadab and Abihu. These were the two elder sons of the first priest of Israel, uh, the first high priest of Israel, Aaron. And on the day that God was going to bless the priesthood and bless the altar, they were struck dead. Why were that? Why did they? Why, why was God so intolerant? What did they do? 
They tried to mix the fire of man with the fire of God. And that's what got them killed. Uh, And my point is, this was at the beginning of the Hebrew priesthood, the Jewish priesthood, the Mosaic priesthood. And uh, God was very intolerant. But yet, we have a high priest here that's persecuting Christ. See, he made his statement back then. Achan is another example. Slain for stealing and lying at the early conquest of Canaan. I'm sure as time went on, we know from Scripture, there were others who did evil things on the battlefield. And they weren't slain like Achan because God made his point. This was the beginning of his work as with Ananias and Sapphira. And so because of these things, we learn them and we become more skilled at what we're doing. Uh, do you want a dentist that is not skilled? Oops, sorry. Oops, sorry. Oops, sorry. <laughs> no, I don't want you to be sorry. I want you to stop hurting me because I'm going to hurt you back. <laughs> anyway, uh, <clears throat> moving on. Instead of looking to walk on water in a storm, I think it is better if we learn how to preach Christ even if we're stoned. That is a sign and wonder that I would rather have. Given the choice, which would you rather do? Show off that you could walk on water in a storm or preach Christ when you were called to preach Christ. I'll take the preaching of Christ. John's Gospel, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me and the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And we read that and we say, greater works. Oh, he must be talking about miracles, signs and wonders. I I don't think so. I think the works that Christ is talking about there are greater because we are going to win souls without miracles. He saw down through the ages that the apostles would lay the foundation for the church to function, survive, and be effective without signs and wonders as a routine part of its existence. I believe in miracles. I just do not believe that they happen like they happened in the book of Acts. I think the Lord has walked that back on purpose, and I've, hopefully I've explained why. By truth and by witness through the Holy Spirit, we do greater works. I mean, think about it. Christ could do miracles because he was God the Son. We can lead people to Christ not being God the Son, being sinners. The value not the volume. That's what Christ was talking about. None have done the mighty works that Christ... I mean, he was going through whole villages, just healing everybody. The apostles have never achieved that level. So it cannot be volume that he is talking about greater miracles. It is the value of the miracle. When the angel lets Peter out of jail, that we'll get to in a moment, where is time gone? Time flies. Uh, When the... Sorry. When the angel lets him out of jail, how come the angel doesn't go preach the gospel? He's forbidden. He's not a sinner. It's, it's for us, those saved by grace. A lot of emotional Christians will struggle with what I'm saying, but it is true. It is a fact. And if you look for less miracles and more effective ministry, I think it would be a greater blessing. You don't have this burden because I've watched people over the decades who claim these miracles and they don't happen and they keep claiming them. 
They don't go back and say, I've got to change this. This is not, this, I must be getting something wrong. Verse 17, we'll be done in a minute, I, I think. Let's see. Well, maybe not. We've got doctrine to go through, Hugh Latimer to quote. We've got just, uh, I think we're going to have to stop there. We've got to get into the words of zeal and envy and jealousy. and uh, oh, There's a lot coming. And Peter, Peter's the one that started with this word of life. We have to get to that to see that here's the angel using Peter's phrase. In the Bible, he coined, uh, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And then the angel says, go out and preach the, word of, the words of life. And it's just uh, exciting to see that, and I don't want to rush through it. So we'll stop there at um, verse 16. Next session, we'll pick up at verse 17. And I don't know uh, what will happen after that. If Let's pray. As the men are preparing the communion, we'll close the session of the study of the word with prayer. Our Father, uh, your word, it has so many uh, benefits to it. There's so many things that we can glean, and not only glean, but sometimes we've got to dig and put them together. Remembering the whole time who you are, your compassion, your desire to save souls, your death on a cross for people who don't deserve your death. We are so grateful that you died to save the sinner from death if the sinner will come to you. So for we who believe, as we consider these things of our faith, maybe, maybe we be reminded we better back it up from the word or back away from it. If you've been listening and you've never given your life to Christ, if you are an unbeliever, but as you've been listening, you've felt God ministering to your heart, you felt you feel God speaking to you. Well, then, if you don't hesitate, you come to the cross right now. God will receive you. You will be his. You make this prayer with me as an example. You will be saved. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken the laws of God. I've broken your laws. And I ask you to forgive me. I come to you. There is no one else to go to. No one else died for me. No one is good enough to die for me. And no one is as powerful enough to rise again from the dead on my behalf. And I ask you to forgive me and receive me as your own from this day forward. That I would be known as a Christian. That I would know that you are the one that not only saves me from judgment to come. But also uses me in this life under your lordship. And I give my life to you. Now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer, may they not hesitate to make it known. May they stand by it. And these things we commit to your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.